Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hi, Nia. Really excited to have you on the show. You're a great thought leader on habits and also how to control your attention as an author, researcher, and also a founder as yourself. So I'd love for you to introduce yourself. Sure. Yeah. So thanks for having me. My name is Nir Ayal, and I'm a behavioral designer. So I help companies build the kind of habits into their products and services that improve people's lives through healthy habits. So I'm the author of two books. The first is called Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. And that's a book that kind of steals the secrets of the Silicon Valley giants like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, WhatsApp, Slack, TikTok, and it makes the psychology of how these products get us hooked accessible to founders, product leaders in all sorts of industry to get people hooked to not frivolity, to not just gaming and social media, but how we can get people hooked to healthy habits in their lives. So I work with a lot of companies in fintech and educational products and health services, anywhere where the business model depends upon repeat customer engagement and the customer's life would benefit from these healthy habits. So that's my first book. My second book is called Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. And so if Hooked is all about how do we build good habits in our lives, Indistractable is about how do we break the bad habits. And we can have our cake and eat it too. I believe that we can use technology in a way that serves us as opposed to hurts us by making sure that we can get the best out of technology by using it to build healthy habits, along with breaking the bad habits that can so often lead us towards distraction. You know, you start out your career as a consultant and later went on to found your own businesses. And you also talk about that in your own experience throughout the books. So could you share a little bit more about how those experiences shaped you in the beginning of your career? I always enjoyed writing, but I didn't want to make a career out of it because of many reasons. But uh, when I graduated from college, I decided to go into consulting. I worked in the, at the Boston Consulting Group for a few years and uh, hated it. <laughs> it was a very difficult experience. I loved it for a while and then my boss changed and then I started hating it. And I actually talk about that in the book Indistractable about how Boston Consulting Group used to be, when I remember it, it was a very difficult culture. We were expected to be available 24-7, constantly distracted, constantly pulled in all directions. And now they've actually made a pretty big transformation. I talk about that transformation in my book about how they've become an indistractable workplace. They went from being a company that people consistently rated as a very difficult place to work at with a terrible work culture to now really a place that's uh, consistently rated as one of America's best places to work. And they made this amazing cultural switch. You know, that experience at BCG taught me a lot, taught me that I didn't want to work at a big company and that I wanted to be an entrepreneur and uh, gave me some of the skills that I used to start my first business, which was in the solar energy business. I started a, a company that was later acquired by a private equity firm. Then I went to business school at Stanford. And while I was there, I started another company. That company was okay, raised a bunch of money from Kleiner Perkins and it was okay, it was an aqua hire. That company was in the gaming and advertising space and it gave me this vantage point of seeing many of these companies, I was in the right place at the right time in Silicon Valley from 2006 to 2016, when a lot of these companies that we think of today as these world-changing companies, I had this front row seat to see how they were so good at changing consumer behavior. And many of these people who started these companies were my friends, my clients, some of them my classmates, and I could ask them questions around how they did what they did, right? What is it that makes these products so darn sticky? When I was thinking about what my next company would do, I knew that I had to build a habit. And the reason I knew that it was even back in 2012 when my second company was acquired, I could tell that we were changing interface, that as we went from desktop to laptop to mobile devices to wearables and now to auditory devices like the Amazon Alexa, as the interface shrank and eventually disappeared, habits would become increasingly important. Because there just isn't the real estate to trigger people with what we call these external triggers, these visual notifications to tell them what to do. It's easy to do when you have a big desktop screen. But what if you have a little bit, a little mobile phone? Well, if you're not on that home screen, if the consumer doesn't remember to use your product, your product might as well not even exist. So you have to build a consumer habit or as the interface shrinks, your product becomes less relevant. And so when I looked out there for, hey, where's the book on how to build habit forming products? I didn't find such a book. 
So I started researching and writing and talking to my friends at these companies, as well as my uh, former professors at Stanford and spent a lot of time at the Stanford library researching academic literature on building habit forming products. And I started blogging about this. And after a few years, one of my professors, Dr. Baba Shiv, reached out. And he said, hey, I've been reading your blog. I really like it. I love this hooked model you've developed. Let's teach a class together. So he invited me to teach with him at Stanford at the GSB. And then later I moved over to the Hassel Planner Institute of Design at Stanford. And then through that curriculum, that became my first book, Hooked. And then I started speaking and consulting and investing, actually. That, that's been the most lucrative part of writing the book, was that uh, I get a lot of interest from people who have used the Hook model and call me up and say, hey, we're using your model. What do you think? And uh, you know, I talk to hundreds of companies every year. I do office hours every week. And so I talk to four companies every week. So you know, that's over 200 companies a year. And then every once in a while, right, I find a company that I think, wow, this is a, an amazing use of the hook model. Can I invest? And so professionally, that's really what I do is I uh, look for companies that use the hook model. And if they'll have me, if they think I can be helpful, then I'll invest. And so far, that's been great. I've invested in 35 companies, so far six unicorns, pretty good hit rate. And so I'm going to continue to do that. That's my professional story to date. I, I hope that answered your question. So how did you go about putting together the decision to be an author, right? Because it's one thing to be thinking about these problems. It's another thing to be a user or designer. But to sit down, do the research and put it together as a thesis, how does that happen? My guiding motivation has always been to follow my curiosity, to scratch my own itch. So I write books that I need. You know, when I have a problem in my life, I'll talk to my wife about it. I'll talk to my good friends about it. If I still don't have a satisfactory answer, I'll read books about it. And nine times out of 10, the answer will already be somewhere, right? Somebody will have researched the problem that I'm having because they've had the problem before. But every once in a while, right, about once every five years, there's a problem that um, I read all the books on the topic and it doesn't solve my problem. So that's what happened with, with Hooked, my first book. I couldn't find any book that specifically addressed how do you build habit-forming products. There's lots of books out, of, out there about how to build personal habits. But that's not what I was looking for. I wanted to find a resource for how do I design products to create habits? How do you build a product that people use because they want to, not because they have to? I didn't find such a book before Hooked. So I decided to write it myself. The same with Indistractable. I read tons of books about uh, focus and distraction and uh, attention. And they all kind of said this very surface level analysis of, you know, it's all technology's fault, right? You're the victim. And they tell me things like, stop using uh, email, stop checking social media. Well, thanks. That's the kind of advice that only a professor who has tenure can give because, you know, most of us will lose our jobs if we stopped using technology. That's stupid. And I don't want to be a victim. I want to use these tools. I want to use these technologies. They're wonderful. I wanted a, a way to use these tools in a way that served me as opposed to feeling like I was serving them. And so when none of these techniques worked, which by the way, I tried many of the techniques in the other books, you know, I did the digital detox, I tried the digital minimalism and guess what? It doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work because it's like a fad diet. If you do it temporarily, if you don't understand the deeper psychology, it doesn't last for long. So I really want to dive into the deeper psychology of why we get distracted in the first place. And so that's always been my central motivator to, to why I write. Frankly, I'm thrilled that I've sold over a million copies of my books, but the real joy of writing these things is to solve my own problems. And I've got lots of problems. So it's fun to be able to study something enough to build for yourself. And by the way, that's the advice I give entrepreneurs all the time too, that it's a huge competitive advantage as opposed to building for some amorphous person out there. It's much better. Your rates of success are going to be much, much higher if you build something that you yourself want. Then, you know, you can't fail because you've built something that at least a market size of one wants. You're the market. So you might not be financially successful with the product, but who cares? At the end of the day, you built the product because you believe it needs to exist in the world. And that's why I write my books as well, because I need the, the solutions I'm writing about. When I read your books, you know, what it reminded me of was another book called Salt, Sugar, Fat. And it talks about the food industry and how there's billions of dollars of R&D and work to make potato chips and Pringles and all these delicious things be, frankly, irresistible, right, in many ways, right? And I think that framing was quite eye-opening from a, I think, framework perspective, but also how it could play out. And I think I definitely noticed a lot more of these habit loops that happen as a result. I think what was interesting at the end of it is, I think there's a lot of pessimism, right? And I think that's why your second book is kind of attacking. But I think people feel like they're surrendering, right? They're like, they're like you know what? This, I'm on TikTok. I'm doom scrolling. That's it. You know, I, I try to be better. And if they try to be better, 
you know, my joke is that they end up going to somewhere else, right? They're complaining about it on Reddit or on Facebook, that they're stuck on TikTok, which is, you know, a somewhat healthier version, I guess, perhaps arguably. So how do you see that happening? Do you feel like as the world continues to like be in this arms race of increasingly habit forming requirements, and it does feel like there's a little bit of a power law, even dynamic, right, to innovation there. What do you think is the end state of that for human focus and wisdom? I think that there's a bifurcation uh, happening in the world today, that there are people who let their time and attention and even their diet, as you say, be controlled by others. And there are people who stand up and say, no, I will decide for myself. And so we have to gain this skill set. You know, the price of progress is that things get better. Would we want it any other way? You know, I, I read Michael Moss's book and I appreciate his writing. I think it's, he's, he's a wonderful writer, but it's very much this victim mentality without addressing the central issue, which is what is the goddamn alternative? Do we want to go back to a world where food was scarce and not delicious? <laughs> no, I, I want Cheetos to exist. Are they delicious? Yes. Do I want to eat them all the time? Yes, but that doesn't mean I have to eat them all the time. And I used to be clinically obese. I ate a lot of Cheetos in my day <laughs> and a lot of donuts and a lot of unhealthy food. And as easy as, as it is, and I used to do this all the time, to blame the things outside of us, to say, oh my gosh, it's all food's fault. It's social media's fault. It's the television's fault. It's, the, you know, it's all these forces outside of us to be what's called a blamer. That is not very productive because there has always been distraction. Distraction is nothing new, right? It's nothing that was suddenly created. You know, we know that the Greek philosopher Plato talked about this problem 2,500 years ago. Right, 2,500 years before Cheetos, before the internet, people were complaining about distraction, about them doing things that they later regret. So this is not a new problem. So being a blamer is not the right solution. The other path that many people take is to be what's called a shamer. A shamer doesn't blame things outside themselves. They shame themselves. They say, oh, I must be broken somehow. Oh, you see, I have a, uh, an addictive personality. I have a short attention span. I have undiagnosed ADHD. I'm a Sagittarius, you know, you name it. They somehow think that they are broken, but that doesn't work either because believing that somehow you are broken leads to more of these uncomfortable sensations, which we then try to escape with, guess what? More distraction. So when I was clinically obese, let me tell you, I wasn't clinically obese because food was delicious. I would have loved to blame fast food and these companies, you know, like Michael Moss does and says that it's these food companies that are making us eat these things. They're, they're literally shoving the food down our throats. No, that's not why I was obese. You know why I was obese? I was obese because I was eating my feelings. When I was bored, I would eat. When I was lonely, I would eat. When I felt ashamed about how much I had just eaten, guess what? I would eat. So shaming yourself is not the right answer. Blaming others is not the right answer. The right answer is not to be a blamer or a shamer. The right answer is, of course, to be a claimer. What does a claimer do? A claimer claims responsibility not for how they feel, but how they will respond to those feelings. This is a very important point. You know, most people don't realize that you do not control your urges. You don't control your urges, okay? The urge to eat junk food, the urge to check social media, the urge to get distracted, you do not control those urges any more than you would control the urge to sneeze, if you feel the urge to sneeze, it's too late. You've already felt that urge. You can't do anything about that urge. What you can do something about is how you will respond to that urge. When you feel the urge to sneeze, do you sneeze all over everyone and get them sick? No, that's not the right thing to do. That's not the socially responsible thing to do. You don't sneeze over others. You take out a handkerchief and you cover your face and that's the responsible thing to do, right? The term responsibility comes from how we will respond to a situation. So a claimer claims responsibility for what they will do in response to those sensations. Most people, distractible people, when they feel discomfort, when they feel boredom, loneliness, uncertainty, stress, anxiety, they want to escape it. And we're somehow told in society that feeling bad is bad. We're constantly told this message. If you feel the slightest ache or pain or discomfort, quick, take a pill, quick, find some kind of solution, do anything to escape discomfort. Bullshit. Discomfort is part of the human condition and high performers learn how to deal with discomfort. This is a huge point in my book and a, a revelation for me. It's helped me in every conceivable facet of my life that I learned that human motivation is not about the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. Human motivation is about one thing. And that one thing is the desire to escape discomfort. All human motivation, if you look inside the human brain, everything we do from a neurological basis is to 
remove discomfort, even the desire to feel good, even the pursuit of pleasure, right? Wanting, craving, lusting, all these things are psychologically destabilizing. So what does this mean? If all human motivation is driven by a desire to escape discomfort, that must therefore mean that time management is pain management. Let me say that again. Time management is pain management. I would go further. Weight management is pain management. Money management is pain management because all human behavior is driven by a desire to escape discomfort. So we need to be comfortable with discomfort. We need to realize that feeling bad is not bad. It's about how we will respond to that discomfort. Because look, we don't have any other choice. Are we gonna sit here and say, hey, food companies, please make your food less delicious because I wanna eat it all the time. Hey, Netflix, make your shows less interesting. I find myself wanting to watch them. Apple, can you make your phones less user-friendly? Come on, this is ridiculous. If we keep blaming and shaming, we're not gonna get anywhere. We have to start claiming responsibility for how we will respond. This is the only way to become indistractable. And there's this real bifurcation that I mentioned earlier between people who will allow their time and attention and their lives to be controlled by others and people who say, no, I will not allow that. I'm going to control my attention. I'm going to control my life because I am going to become indistractable. Thanks for sharing. Love what you discuss about the human condition and calling bullshit on the you know, industry practices and how you know pain management is kind of what we have to do. I too also used to be clinically obese a few years ago. And I feel like my solution was talking about Greek philosophy was like Pantheon, right? I ran in the other direction and I prayed at the God of fitness and I voted with my feet by subscribing on Instagram to fitness and health, leaving breadcrumbs to newsletters on health, fitness and nutrition. So I ran the other direction to, you know, looking for Noom, which is another you know, habit farming product, Fitbit, Apple Watch, et cetera, to do that. So it does feel like indestructible. You know, I was reading it and it kind of made me feel like, is that actually that neutral space where I think you master yourself? But it almost feels like the world's almost like polarizing, right? It's like, it's either you're with the fast food industry in a sense, or you're worshiping at the exercise and fitness and personal health industry, right? I mean, not necessarily. Look, I'm not an industry apologist, right? There's lots of bad stuff that the food industry does, that the tech industry does, that they need to be held account for. And I'm not saying we should use these things more, quite the opposite, right? You should definitely be mindful about how you use these things. What I'm rallying against is saying, you know what? It's the government that needs to fix this problem for me. Why doesn't the government just pass laws to regulate this stuff? Let's regulate fast food. Let's regulate social media. Let's regulate this stuff. Well, we know what happens when the geniuses in government get their hands on industry. They screw it up, right? That's what happens. I mean, go to Europe and try and use the internet. You got to push these goddamn buttons a million times to freaking let you use a web page. You know, these GDPR regulations that are supposed to protect people do nothing but annoy the hell out of us. And they mess it up every time they mess it up. Now, there is room for good regulation when it comes to protecting children. Absolutely. We definitely need to protect children. When it comes to protecting people who are pathologically addicted. Absolutely. We need to protect those people, too, because they are people who are not operating in their sound body and mind. But for the rest of us, right? It's a personal responsibility issue. <laughs> we got to do something about this ourselves. What, are we going to sit here and say, I'm going to wait for fast food to make their food less delicious? I'm going to wait for media to make their products less interesting? It's not going to happen. What choice do we have? So as opposed to blaming and shaming, we need to claim. We need to start doing something for ourselves. And that might mean not using many of these products, right? There are many foods I won't eat because I know they're really bad for me, right? But that doesn't mean I want them banned. I should have the option to eat Twinkies and Cheetos if I want. I want to live in that kind of world, just like I want to live in a world where, you know, if I wanted to smoke a cigarette, I could, but I choose not to because I know it's very unhealthy. And frankly, who doesn't know that cigarettes are unhealthy? <laughs> like, it boggles my mind why anybody would smoke today. Almost anybody on planet Earth, really, you don't know that it's bad for you? But it's not up to me to tell you you can't smoke, right? I, it's a personal choice. I'm not going to be the person who says we should ban all cigarettes forever. I think that's it's a little bit extreme. But I do think, obviously, there is room for regulation for people who can't make sound decisions. That's great because, you know, we almost see those two trends, right? We see the banning of cigarettes in New Zealand for future generations. And then we also see the legalization of cannabis, right? You know, across the world yeah, as well. Which is ridiculous. You know, we know that 15% of people who smoke cannabis have what's called a cannabis use disorder, right? They literally get addicted to cannabis. And cannabis is way worse for you than smoking because it doesn't have a filter. Joints don't have 
filters the way cigarettes do. So, okay, you know, there's there's controversy there about, well, you don't smoke as much uh, cannabis as you do cigarettes. But per joint, a joint has way more carcinogens than a cigarette. So, yeah, it's kind of ironic that we want to deregulate cannabis at the same time that we want to regulate social media. Seems a little silly. <laughs> you know, if only social media came in a joint, right? <laughs> then <it'd be> more <laughs> obvious. Right. By the way, just to be clear, I do think there is room for some regulation, right? I think, for example, you know, TikTok is very scary, right? I don't think if a foreign government were to come in and want to control the New York Times, right? Let's just say somebody, you know, name a random country, some billionaire in some country was going to come in and say, I'm going to buy the New York Times. The American government would not allow that. It's just too much of an influential platform. And somehow TikTok, which we know the laws in China allow a real undue amount of influence onto that platform. We don't have much evidence of them trying to influence that. So let's make sure the record's clear. But the fact that they could is scary, but not because the product is necessarily engaging, but just because it's a product with a huge potential audience. So there is room for regulation. But I think what will not be regulated away is the fact that a product is engaging. Okay, we want products to be engaging. We want products to be designed in a way that makes us want to use them. That's the point. That's not a problem. That's progress. <laughs> so I think in that respect, it's up to us. There's lots of other things we should regulate when it comes to, you know, undue influence and, you know, foreign influence in elections, things like that, and certainly protection of children. But when it comes to the basic question of, hey, is a product, quote unquote, addictive? It's not that simple right? Because anything is potentially addictive. We know that any analgesic, literally anything that solves pain, any analgesic is potentially addictive to someone. There's cases of people getting addicted to eating paint. There's people who get addicted to sniffing glue. There's people who get addicted to literally drinking water. There are reported cases of people getting addicted, unhealthily addicted to drinking water. That's not water's fault. <laughs> That's a confluence of factors, right? People who have addiction, it's a pathology. It's a disease. Unfortunately, we've uh, medicalized otherwise normal behavior and moralized otherwise normal behavior to make it not our problem. I check TikTok too much. I look at Instagram too much. That's not my fault. That's the technology's doing it to me. You see, they're addicting me. It's not my problem. It's not my fault. I can't do anything about it. And that is actively harmful. So when people believe that they're quote unquote addicted when they're not, right? Addiction is a pathology. It's a disease. When you believe that there's nothing you can do about a problem, your focus is being stolen and your brain is being hijacked. If you believe that rubbish, guess what happens? What do you do? Nothing. Because how can I? It's not my, I, I'm no agency here, right? It's Zuckerberg who's addicting me. That's what I'm fighting against. I'm trying to tell people that you do have agency. You do have control as, as two formerly obese people can show you here on this, on this episode that when you start taking some small steps and first and foremost believe you have the power to do something about it, you can change your behavior. You can change your life. The worst thing you can do is to believe, well, there's nothing I can do. I'm powerless. So much to cover. Frankly, I agree with you about TikTok. I think you zoomed in that there were like three pillars I really enjoyed. Like being a dad with daughter, you know, there was content they showed me. They showed me bilingual jokes. And then thirdly, they showed me a whole bunch of like Singapore crime and history clips, right? And I was just like consuming so much content that's there. At some point, I realized that I was in an app full of ghosts, right? You know, like these are all people. They look like human, but it's an algorithm. It's a robot talking to me, puppeteering ghosts. You know, these people could all be dead, for example. <laughs> and that TikTok algorithm will continue to serve me all this great content, right? But it feels like, like you're saying is you're not against them being thoughtful about their habit forming product design. What you're most concerned about is regulation in terms of foreign slash country control. And then secondly, protecting children. Is that how you would go about regulating TikTok? So number one, yes, children need special protection. You know, there's lots of things that I wouldn't let my 14-year-old daughter do. I wouldn't let her go into a casino and start gambling. I wouldn't let her walk into a bar and order a gin and tonic. She's not ready for it, right? And so we have special laws to protect children from certain behaviors that are potentially harmful because they're not of sound body and mind. So that's number one. Number two, people who are pathologically addicted. So I've been advocating for years now that companies that know who are the people who are actually addicted. Now I'm not talking about, ooh, I like to use it a lot. I'm talking about the people who are pathologically addicted. Now, what does that look like? What I want companies to do is to have some kind of what I call a use and abuse policy. They should have some kind of number that says, hey, if you use our product X number of hours, let's say 30 hours a week, 40 hours a week, it doesn't matter, make up the number. If you use the product this many hours per week, you set off an alarm 
you get a message that says, hey, we see that you are using a pro our product in a way that may indicate you're struggling with an addiction. Can we help? Right? Not necessarily kicking you off. And by the way, this is about three to 5% of the population, the real, you know, real extreme users. This isn't, oh, I like to, you know, go on TikTok for 30 minutes a day or something. This is people who are really addicted, using this to the point where it's harming them. And so that's a place where I think companies do have a special responsibility because they know, they know how much you're using. As opposed to, you know, the alcohol manufacturers, they don't know. How do they know who the alcoholics are? How could they reach out and say, hey, you're drinking too much? They couldn't. But these tech companies, the gaming companies, the social media companies, they know. <laughs> they have personally identifiable information to know exactly how many hours a day you're spending on their platforms. So I believe they should reach out for that real, you know, three to five top percent and say, hey, you may be struggling with addiction. How can we help? Can you use these tools, for example, to limit your use? Here's how to use, you know, by the way, our phones today, I have this on my devices, these time limits, you know, so for example, I don't have TikTok on my phone for the reasons we previously discussed. But for example, Instagram is a very sticky product. I really enjoy using Instagram, but I have this time limit 30 minutes a day at a certain time of day. And my phone tells me, okay, you're approaching 30 minutes a day. That's enough. <laughs> and it's wonderful. It works great. But if you're the kind of person who's spending hours and hours, I think the companies have a special responsibility to reach out to you and see how they can help and perhaps suggest some of these resources or counseling, et cetera. This third category, I think has to do with, with undue influence. So in many ways, you know, I trust the CCP a lot less than I would trust Zuckerberg or Google or, you know, these tech companies in the States, because I know what their incentives are, right? I know what Google's incentives are. I know what Amazon's incentives are. I know what Meta's incentives are. They just want to make money. Okay. I really, truly believe that all this political garbage, they wish they could ignore. They just want to make money. That's not the case with the CCP. And so I think that's what scares me about a company where we don't know their motives. We don't know what's behind the scenes. There is the opportunity to have undue influence. You know, all TikTok has to do is just to show you just a few more things in, in your feed, this algorithmically fed feed of pro-China content, suppress some of the protests. And we know for, to, in, that they've definitely done this inside China. And if you need any more evidence, look at the fact that, you know, American-made technology is banned in China. You can't use... Facebook in China, you can't use Google, you can't use YouTube, all the American technology is already banned. And somehow, their technology is not banned here. So that's weird. That seems to set up some red flags. And we already see this in America, we already know that, you know, many on the state level, many municipalities are banning TikTok on government issued phones. And I think and I hope and I advocate for more regulation if not outright ban, I'm not sure an outright ban is the right answer, but at least regulation around what can and can't be done because this can all happen in the shadows, right? It could already be happening and we would not know because there's zero accountability, there's zero transparency to know, hey, are they putting their fingers on the algorithm a little bit to influence content one way or the other? We would have no clue. I think definitely you see a government role in terms of regulating undue influence. For the you know use and abuse policy, do you believe the industry can reach that self-regulation dynamic or would that also require government intervention or incentivization to make that happen? Yeah, I've been advocating it for about eight years now. I wrote an article exactly saying this, that this is what companies should do, stating very clearly that you know we have to protect children, we have to protect people who are pathologically addicted. For the rest of us, it's a personal responsibility issue. So that's 95 to 97% of us, it's on us. For that small percentage of users, it's something that these companies should do. And to date, they haven't done anything. And I've given up Frankly, I think government needs to step in and say, you need a use and abuse policy to protect people who are overusing your product. Now, of course, the industry is going to say that's not fair. The cable news companies, the television, the newspaper, right? Who's going to tell you from the New York Times, hey, stop reading the paper so much, go have a life, right? Nobody from CNN or Fox News is going to tell you, you've watched too much TV, go do something with your life. They're not going to tell you that either. And they have a point. But the counter argument is, yeah, but you know, right? The cable companies, the New York Times, at least not in their paper format, they don't know who the news junkies are. They can't reach out and tell you, hey, take a break. But these tech companies do know. And if you do know, I think you have a responsibility. So yeah, in that respect, I do think that the tech companies, because they haven't done this themselves, deserve to be regulated in this way. What's interesting is that you have this really global outlook, right? You have obviously worked across America, you work across the world, and also across Southeast Asia, right? So what would you say are the differences globally in terms of the understanding, for example, at one level of habit farming products, and also the next layer in terms of controlling attention and, and government regulation? What are the global and regional differences you're seeing? It's interesting. I think uh, U.S. companies, just by their very nature, are very U.S. focused. So the amount of resources that companies devote to 
moderation of content in some places is much greater than others. You know, I think we, we've seen examples of in the past, I think it's been corrected, but I don't know. I don't have an inside perspective of really, you know, negligence by some of these social media companies not having moderation in place to cut off violence. You know, we saw this happen in Myanmar. We've seen this happen in a few places now. But from what I understand, they've really beefed up that effort to make sure that doesn't happen again. This is part of the growing pains of a company that got very big very quickly. There's also different standards. What you can say in America is very different from what you can say in Singapore. So in Singapore, you know, there's certain things you can't say about people's racial or ethnic origin or religious uh, affiliation that you can absolutely say in America, but because of Singaporean law, you can't say here. And I'll tell you, you know what, I'm still struggling with this because I think I came to sing. I now live in Singapore. And when I first came here, I was kind of a free speech absolutist and thought, you know, we need to talk about this stuff. We need social debate. We need to criticize each other. That's how we get better. That's the public square. And I have to tell you now, I'm not so sure. I wonder if, you know, there's free speech, even in the United States, even though it's you know considered the First Amendment is, is the most important right part of, of, of the Bill of Rights around freedom of speech. But even that is limited, right? There's certain speech that is not legal. You can't shout fire in a crowded theater. You can't incite violence, for example. That is illegal. That is not protected speech. But in Singapore, there is speech that is also regulated that now I'm starting to think, well, there's some good reasons for that, right? Do we really need to criticize each other's race and religion? Like maybe the things that people can't change, maybe we should limit that speech. I, so I'm still struggling with this. I wish I had a better answer, but it seems like from what I understand, the social media companies are doing a pretty decent job of abiding by local regulation. At least I haven't seen any big mess up since Singapore. I think it was October of 2020 or 2021 that they passed this new legislation requiring even more moderation by the social media companies. And it seems like they've kept up pretty well. So I, I wonder if maybe there, <laughs> maybe there's a lot of wisdom in, in encouraging debate, right? We want freedom of expression. We want people to, to talk about issues, but maybe there are certain issues that are just not worth it, right? Like maybe things that people can't change, right? You don't try and change my religion. I won't try and change yours. Maybe that's okay. <laughs> yeah, definitely see, I think, precedents for that all across the world, right? Even in Germany, for example, limits on free speech that, you know, I think is a function of the country's um, you know, history and you know, fears, right? And ideals. That I actually disagree with. I'm Jewish. My grandparents were Holocaust survivors, and I would actually defend the right to deny the Holocaust. It's obviously ridiculous. It's not true. The Holocaust absolutely did happen. My grandmother will tell you, you know, but she's passed, but she could tell you all kinds of stories about exactly what she experienced at the camps. But I do think we should allow that type of speech because that's a historical event. We can debate that, and that's going to exist under the in the shadows, no matter what. So that I think is too extreme. I also, of course, you know, I think what China does in terms of uh, banning everything that people talk about, to the, you, you can't criticize any type of government intervention. That's also ridiculous, right? To the point where people have to protest with white pieces of paper. <laughs> it's even now, and so what do they do? They banned paper. I mean, that's you know, obviously ridiculous. But maybe there's a, a middle ground. Maybe if, if the United States is way on one end and China's way on the other, then maybe there's somewhere in the middle that makes sense that certain topics uh, is okay to not talk about in the public square. I, by the way, another area that I think the US is too lax on is our libel laws, you know, our, our libel and slander laws. Like you can literally say anything about a public figure, all right? If you tweet something even, they can say anything about you. You know, you can, if you're a politician, they can, you know, you can literally print in the newspaper in America that, uh, you know, Joe Biden got abducted by aliens and you can put that in print and that's totally fine. It doesn't have to be factually correct in any way, shape or form just because you're a public figure. That's something you can't do in Singapore, which also maybe <laughs> there's some logic there too. I don't know. Maybe if you have a claim about somebody, there should be some basis of fact behind it. Again, I'm not arguing exactly the particulars of how the law is implemented. I think it can be abused as well. But I think since I've been here, my mind has been open to perhaps there are some forms of speech that that shouldn't quite be so lacking in accountability. You know, I think accountability is a big word they use over and over again, right? Personal accountability versus accountability, you know, in terms of the public square versus accountability in the face of government. So why is this accountability and personal ownership important to you? Because I think it's the point of greatest leverage. So when you assign responsibility for who should act, whose responsibility is something, you have to always ask yourself, who is the party that has the most leverage in changing the situation? I'll give you a, an analog here. So let's say you're driving, there's a car in front of you, right? And that car in front of you 
quickly slams on the brakes for whatever reason, okay? They quickly slam on the brakes. Whose fault is it if you hit the, the car in front of you? The fault is the driver in front because they quickly slammed on the brakes, right? They did something they should not have done in the middle of the highway. You don't slam on your brakes. But whose responsibility is it? It's the driver behind, right? The driver behind has to maintain a safe distance from the car in front. And if they hit the car in front of them, guess who's going to get the ticket? It doesn't matter if the driver in front slammed on the brakes. The driver in back is responsible. Their insurance will have to pay the fine. This is exactly back to your question. The reason I harp on personal accountability is because who has the easier time of fixing the situation? You do, right? Pick up your phone, change the notification settings, read Indistractable, learn how to use these products and services in a way that serves you as opposed to you serving them. It's a much easier point of leverage than sitting here and waiting for the government or these companies to fix the problem. And so that's why I keep harping on it. So the takeaway here is just because something is not your fault doesn't mean it's not your responsibility. You didn't invent these things, right? You didn't invent Cheetos. You didn't invent donuts. You didn't invent social media. It's not your fault, but it is your responsibility. It's tricky because personal responsibility seems to be increasingly coded, right, for politics and partisanship. And I think at a deep level, on a personal level, I think everybody gets it, right? And I think every parent and every family and every personal conversation seems to be pretty straightforward, right? Like we are accountable for how we drive, and we are accountable for how we respond to anything. It just feels like once it kind of like gets out there, you know, one zone, two zones, three zones out, then it just becomes us versus them, right? If you believe in this, da 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 da. So, why do you think that's happening from your perspective? How do we navigate that? The brain is a cognitive miser. We love to jump to quick answers and easy conclusions because that feels good right? We always want easy answers. There's all kinds of ridiculous things that people believe because they seem right, right? For most of human history, people thought the world was flat and you had to really convince them. Even today, you have to convince people that the world is not flat because that requires some cognitive effort. Look, it looks flat. I say everything I say, look, obviously it's flat, <laughs> but you have to do an experiment. You have to, you know, take a laser and go very far away and shoot it through a little hole. And then you'll see that the laser won't go through the, the hole that's very far away because of the curvature of the earth. So you have to think a little bit, you have to devise an experiment. You have to test your assumptions. And the fact is, people don't like to test their assumptions. We're very comfortable thinking in ways that make us look good, right? Nobody wants to think that, wait a minute, I got to do something about this. Can't I just complain? <laughs> that's no fun, right? Like, that sucks. I don't want to think that I can do something to lose weight. I don't want to think that I can do something to change my uh, the way I interact with uh, products and services. That it, it can't be my fault, right? That's no fun. That's one. The second thing I think that's unique about technology specifically and social media in particular is that the mediums telling you that it's not your fault have an, a financial incentive to do so, right? Like where are people getting the information that technology is melting their brain? Where are they hearing that it's hijacking as we heard in the Social Dilemma film, right? That was on Netflix where we have people in the movie saying technology is hijacking your brains. Screw you. Hijacking is what they did to us on 9-11. To use the word hijacking to describe I play Candy Crush too much is offensive, okay? Technology is not hijacking your brain. It's a distraction. You like it, so you use it a lot, right? And by the way, who brought you this film, The Social Dilemma? Netflix brought you the movie, <laughs> right? Like Reed Hastings, the CEO, says that their biggest competitor to Netflix is sleep. <laughs> right? The New York Times tells you how horrible social media is because guess what? They're losing market share to social media. Fox News and CNN hate new media. They hate social media. They hate the fact that you're getting your news from Substacks. All they want to do is tell you how terrible technology is because their business model is the same business model. They're making money selling your attention to advertisers. Does anybody not know that that's how the media makes money? They sell your attention to advertisers the same way that social media does. So that's the second thing we need to consider is that you know the people bringing you this information are in the same damn business. So of course they have an incentive. Not that it's like, oh, a big malicious plot, right? They're not like sitting there and plotting how can we do something uh, to get people to stop using social media. 
it's part of their DNA. It's part of the, you know, and I used to work in journalism. I was a journalism co-major. I worked at CBS. I worked at the New York Times. Like I know how these companies operate. The first rule of news media is if it bleeds, it leads. They want to show you that sensational. They want to show you the stuff that spreads, the viral content. They don't care if it's high quality. They don't care if it's what you need. They want you to click. It's the same business model. So of course, I'm not surprised that uh, many people have a warped perception because that's what we're told again and again and again. The more you repeat a message, technology is addictive, technology is hijacking your brain, it's stealing your focus. Well, the more people believe it, unfortunately, and they don't question these assumptions. The tricky part, of course, is it's happening. It's already happening. It keeps happening, right? So how should people react to this, right? I mean, it feels like it's just going to keep snowballing, right? It's like, I don't think the media is going to stop, you know? leading with those articles, you know, it's just going to escalate it further. And technology is going to become more pervasive and more persuasive, right? Technology is only going to get better. It's only going to become more potentially distracting. But sorry, I, I cut you off there. Well, you pretty much said what I was going to say, right? Yeah, the core of it, it feels like technology is in this arms race, racing ahead. And humans are kind of like, I don't know, holding a stone club. And Well, yes and no. I mean, we oftentimes hear this argument of like, oh, our primal brain is not uh, equipped for modern distraction. Once again, bullshit. <laughs> you know, the thing that the human brain is, is better than any other species on the face of the earth at doing is adaptability, right? Murder is the most natural thing ever. Humans murdered each other left and right all the time. But then you know what? We realized that wasn't good for us to keep murdering each other. And we started organizing societies and laws, and we gave power away from us as individuals to government to become the, the Leviathan that then regulates how we behave to each other. So don't, we don't murder each other. Okay. Rape is historically throughout the canon, right? We know that this would happen all the time. All kinds of other terrible things that people did to each other that we don't do anymore. We learn new behaviors. So what the human species does when it comes to new technology is we adapt and we adopt. We adapt our behaviors to these, these new changes. We change the way we interact with them, which is what Indistractable is all about. It's this new skill set. Okay, so you want to be able to communicate with people all over the world, your, the world's information at your fingertips. You want constant entertainment for free? Well, the cost of all that is learning some new skills, folks. Sorry. <laughs> right? Like, if you want to drive a car, you have to learn how to drive the car. And so you need some basic skills. And so the same goes when it comes to our technology. We got to learn some new skills. That's what Indistractable does. So the first thing we do is we adapt our behaviors. We adopt, we adapt these new norms around how we use these products and services. The second thing we do is that we adopt new technologies to fix the last generation of bad technologies. So uh, Paul Virilio, the philosopher, said, when you invent the ship, you invent the shipwreck. Okay, when you invent the ship, you invent the shipwreck. So of course, any disruptive technology, any technology that has this massive impact on the world is going to have shipwrecks. There's going to be bad sides to it as well. Every technology that has this kind of impact is going to have goods and bads. So when it comes to shipping, when was the last time you heard of a shipwreck? Pretty rare. You don't really hear about shipwrecks anymore. Why is that? Did we stop sailing ships? Did we ban shipping? No, we made shipping better. We adopted new technology we don't sail ships with you know massive sails like Christopher Columbus used. No, we have better technology today that makes shipwrecks less common. So that's exactly what we need to do with all these technologies. So that's what we see already. I don't know anybody under 30 that still uses Facebook Blue, right? The Facebook proper. Now they're all, okay, they use WhatsApp. And I know WhatsApp and Instagram is, is owned by, by Meta. But I would argue that Instagram fixed lots of the problems of Facebook. It's a better version. And now we see this continuing to evolve. Now there's other new versions that it gets better and better. It continues to evolve. And that's what human beings have always done. We adapt our behaviors, our norms, and we adopt new technology to fix the last generation of technology. You speak about you know, this generation and the next generation, right? And Generation Z is upon us. And my children, who have been recently born over the past two years, I guess they'll be Generation Alpha, right? I guess, I don't know what they're going to call them. That's my guess. Peep into your crystal ball a little bit about technology improving, all these products changing. How do you envision the next generation kind of like growing up, what their relationship with technology is going to be? This is a, a really important point. So I have a 14-year-old and uh, she's very much a digital native. I think some of her first words were iPad time, iPad time. <laughs> so it's incredibly important that we think about our children, starting with, you know, how do we raise indistractable children? So there's a whole chapter in the book about how to raise indistractable kids. And it starts with first asking ourselves, what kind of example are we setting? that uh, many of us, myself included, I used to be a hypocrite. I would tell my daughter to stop doing this and that on her phone. And meanwhile, I was checking email. You can't do that. 
If you want to raise indistractable kids, you have to be indistractable yourself because, you know, children are born with hypocrisy detection devices. They have these little invisible antennas that you can't see, but they're there that are constantly looking for when you're a hypocrite and they love to call you out on it. And so they're looking, right? They're, they're constantly watching you. By the way, this is the same if you're a manager at, uh, at your place of work. You can't tell your employees to focus and not be distracted if you're constantly checking your device and you're the big boss who constantly is on their phones. You're setting an example. So that's the first thing we have to do. We have to learn how to become indistractable ourselves and to be vulnerable with our kids and to tell them, look, I'm struggling with this as well, that these products are designed to be very enticing, right? To get us hooked. <laughs> and so I can tell you, you know, I, I wrote the book. I know all their tricks and I can tell you they're good. They're not that good right? It's not, it's not mind control. It's not uh, hijacking your brain. This is clearly something we can do something about. And so we need to evolve our kids in learning the same exact process. Because, you know, as you said, the world is only going to become a more distracting place. And so this is the most important skill. It's more important than teaching them swimming and ballet and Mandarin and all the skills we think we're teaching them. If they don't have the skill to focus their attention, it's all for naught. Look, in a few years, many of the skills that they are acquiring today are going to be pointless. We're going to have blabble fishes in our ears that are going to translate a language. There's really no point to learning any other language but code. In a few years, our kids will talk, you know, go to some other country and they'll be able to converse just like we are now in different languages. But the skills that they really will need will be the skill to acquire new skills, right? And that skill is the skill of becoming indistractable. This is the skill of the century because if you can't focus your attention long enough to learn a new skill, you don't truly control your life. So this is the skill of the century. Our, our kids have to learn how to do this. You know, you shared about, you know, sharing about being a good example for kids and so, so forth. On that personal note, could you share with us a time that you personally have been brave? Um, a time when I've been brave. This is a tough one. I think it's tough for me to share when I mess up, <laughs> but I know it's super necessary. So in my book, I talk about how the impetus to write this book in the first place was when uh, I was with my daughter one afternoon and we had just some daddy-daughter time planned. And I remember we had uh, this activity book of different things that we could do together, build a paper airplane and, and fly it across the room and do Sudoku puzzle. And one of the activities in the book was to ask each other this question. And if you could have any superpower, what superpower would you have? I remember the question verbatim, but I can't tell you what my daughter said. Because in that moment, for whatever reason, I thought it was a good time. Let me just check this one quick thing on my phone. And by the time I looked up, she was gone. And I was giving her a very clear message that whatever was on my phone was more important than she was. And she went to go with to play with some toy outside. And that's when I realized I had to reassess my own relationship with distraction. And that was kind of the impetus to write this book was to figure out, man, if, if I'm doing this with her, where else am I doing this? And I was doing it at work when I would say I was going to work on this big project and I would get distracted and do something else. I would do it when I would say, oh, I'm definitely going to eat right. I'm definitely going to exercise today, but I didn't and I wouldn't. And so that kind of got me on this journey. And so I guess the brave thing that I did was that I went back to her and I apologized, which is hard for a dad, right? To say like, hey, I'm, I was wrong here. Okay, I, I messed up. As parents, we're supposed to have all the answers. And for, for me to go back and tell my daughter, hey, look, I'm really sorry. I was not my best, and I would really love to know what superpower you would most want. And she told me later on that the superpower she would want is the power to be kind. That was a superpower she would most want. Not to fly like Superman or, you know, whatever other superpowers, but the power to be kind. And that, of course, melted my heart. And it actually, like, kind of tied back the message of indistractable because, you know, being kind is not an incredible superpower. You don't need to be bit by a radioactive spider like like Spider-Man. You don't need, you know, to be born on a on an alien planet like uh like Superman. To be kind is something that we can all do. And of course, the same goes for being indistractable. That it's a choice that we can make that decision to be kind or to be indistractable. When you see the next generation of kids, right? Your children and the next generation of children. I think what are your first of all, your hopes? And then secondly, what are their fears, you know, for them as they grow up? I think my hope is that they have a sense of agency. I think that having a, a belief in your own power to change things is incredibly important. In, in the psychology literature, we call this an internal versus an external locus of control. And we know that this simple differentiation, this dichotomy of people who believe that their life is controlled by circumstances outside themselves versus people who believe that their circumstances are controlled by, by things inside themselves. So personal agency versus kind of doing whatever the world has, has given you, fate versus agency. People who believe in agency 
are better off in almost every conceivable metric. They live longer, healthier, more connected, more productive lives by believing in their agency, even when it's not there. So that's the kicker, that even if it's true, and it clearly is, I'm, I'm, I'm not uh, a blind optimist to say, oh, everything is in your control. No, you get sick, that's not in your control. You're discriminated against as an ethnic minority or as of a particular gender or uh, orientation. There are problems that are not your fault, clearly. But even if that's the case, it never serves us to think we're victims. It never serves us to be victims, to think of ourselves as victims, to think that the world has done this to us. It always is better to believe that you have agency. And so that's my, my wish and my fear for this generation is that they lose this sense of agency. And so the more we can help our kids understand that you do have a role to play, a, a huge role, the biggest role to play comes down to you and your choices. Wow. That was amazing. And I really appreciate you sharing that hope for our children and next generation. On that note, I'd love to wrap things up by, I think, summarizing the three big themes that I got from this uh, conversation. The first that really came through was really fighting for agency, personal accountability, ownership, being thoughtful about a world where you know, there are financial incentives, there's the industry players and all the various games that folks are playing, but never forgetting about that personal sense of responsibility and being thoughtful about the fact that, you know, the human condition is a function of pain management and escape from discomfort. So really thoughtful, I think, philosophy that actually makes it much easier for me to, now that I think about it, I think is, I think the value core, I think, across both the books, Hooked and Indestructible. The second I really enjoyed was uh, free speech and the regulatory point of view on TikTok and social media. I really enjoyed, I think, for example, you sharing about the nuance that you have seen from your moves across geography and time. And also, I think to some extent, how have you changed your point of view in terms of how you want to fight for the rights of children, folks who are easily addicted and undue influence about the role of government, but also the limits or capability of industry self-regulation, right? For example, in the op-ed that you wrote years ago. Lastly, I think one thing that came up quite clear was, I think, the hope for the next generation and our children. I think what really came across for me in this conversation was, I think these books are not only just ways for product designers or individuals to live life today, but I really think they are a stake in the ground to fight for the next generation in terms of um, the values. And I really appreciated your story about how you chose to be brave, right? To be present with your child again uh, and admitting your error. So I really love uh, everything you shared. Thank you so much. It was wonderful to be with you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave.